feel a little bit like those animated toys that you get the battery in and you switch on and off they go. It's really good to be uh, with you again this morning and as has been said for next week as well. Really looking forward to that. Somebody has noticed that the word father appears in the dictionary just before the word fatigued and just after the word fathead. So, for all of us fatigued fatheads, we want to wish you a happy Father's Day. Traveling on a flight from Denver to Kansas City, a Reader's Digest contributor heard this conversation between a mum and her eight-year-old son. Now remember, Billy, run and hug dad first when we land and then go to the dog. But just to show our appreciation this morning, we just want to say that we want to honor all the dads and granddads who are here. Those guys who have and still do work so hard, provide so well, lead so courageously, care so deeply, love so unconditionally, pray so faithfully, and believe in us so consistently. We really appreciate you fathers and grandfathers out there. And be assured that even though it might not feel like it always, all that you do really does make a difference. To be effective, you don't have to be cool, hip, trendy, or a jock. All you have to do is to be present. And kudos, by the way, if there are any single mums here who are pulling double duty being mum and dad. So let's turn in our Bibles this morning, shall we, to Luke's Gospel and chapter 15, one of the most famous passages in the whole of the New Testament. We're going to pick it up in a moment at verse 11. The title of my message this morning is The Father Heart of God. And if you are there already, it's going to come up on the screen in a different version in a moment. You'll realize that this is what every Sunday school kid will tell you is called the prodigal son. But in actual fact, this parable is less about the son, but much more about the father. And that's the paradigm that I want to take this morning. So, let's read it together. I'm going to ask my wife to come and help us. And after that, I want to draw out three simple points about our Father God as is revealed in this parable. She's going to be reading from the Passion Translation. Once there was a father with two sons... Once there was a father with two sons, the younger son came to his father and said, Father, don't you think it's time to give me my share of your estate? So the father went ahead and distributed between the two sons their inheritance. Shortly afterward, the younger son packed up all his belongings and traveled off to see the world. He journeyed to a far-off land where he soon wasted 
all he was given in a binge of extravagant and reckless living. With everything spent and nothing left, he grew hungry because there was a severe famine in that land. So he begged a farmer in that country to hire him. The farmer hired him and sent him out to feed the pigs. The son was so famished, he was willing even to eat the slop given to the pigs because no one would feed him a thing. Humiliated, the son finally realized what he was doing, and he thought, there are many workers at my father's house who have all the food they want with plenty to spare. They lack nothing. Why am I here, dying of hunger, feeding these pigs and eating their slop? I want to go back home to my father's house. And I'll say to him, Father, I was wrong. I have sinned against you. I'll never again be worthy to be called your son. Please, Father, just treat me like one of your employees. So the young son set off for home. From a long distance away, his father saw him coming, dressed as a beggar. And great compassion swelled up in his heart for his son who was returning home. The father raced out to meet him, swept him up in his arms, hugged him dearly, and kissed him over and over with tender love. Then the son said, Father, I was wrong. I have sinned against you. I could never deserve to be called your son. Just let me be. The father interrupted and said, son, you're home now. Turning to his servants, the father said, quick, bring me the best robe, my very own robe, and I will place it on his shoulders. Bring the ring, the seal of sonship, and I will put it on his finger and bring out the best shoes you can find for my son. Let's prepare a great feast and celebrate. For my beloved son was once dead, but now he's alive. Once he was lost, but now he is found. And everyone celebrated with overflowing joy. Thanks, Val. The first thing that we come to understand here is that God is a father. In this story, the elder son represents religious people. The youngest son represents non-religious people. And the father represents God. So the first thing we learn, and it's such an important truth, is that God is a father. Why don't we say that together? God is a a father. In fact, this isn't something that's just confined to this parable, but it's something that goes right the way throughout the Bible. So, for instance, the psalmist says in Psalm 68, a father to the fatherless is God in his sanctuary. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray and tells them, when you pray, begin by saying, our father who art in heaven. And again, he assures them in the Sermon on the Mount, do not be anxious because your father knows what you have need before you ask him. 
John declares, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. And writing to the Romans, Paul says, you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba. Notice he doesn't say the formal father here, but he uses the most intimate word it was possible to use to describe that person. Abba, dad, daddy, papa. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. God is called a father 250 times in the New Testament. And he's not just the father of Israel, and he's not just the father of Jesus, he's the father of every one of us. Every one of us sitting in this room, no exceptions. Now, if that's true, it means three things. First of all, it means he was the one who made us. You and I are not the product of our parents' careful family planning or a miracle of modern medical intervention. We are here because of God's will. He was the one that gave us life. And equally, nobody here was as a result of poor family planning or of rape or of another sort of crisis pregnancy. Over all the circumstances of yours and mine existence, there is the sovereign hand of God and the wise plan of the Almighty. The truth is that from the foundation of the world, God saw you and me, desired us, and willed us into being. So he engineered the meeting of the only two people in the whole universe it was possible to bring us into being. He caused them to fall in love. He officiated at their wedding. He gave them the desire to begin their family at just the right time. Or expand their family at just the right time. And then with great sovereignty, he brought together the only sperm and the only egg in the entire universe that could result in you being you and me being me. Maybe the circumstances of your birth were less regular. But remember, this is what Rick Warren says... There might be such things as accidental parents, but there are no such things as accidental children. Each one of us has been planned and created by God himself. David tells us, and we've already seen this, God knit us together in our mother's womb. God fearfully and wonderfully made us. All of our days are written in his book before there was a single one of them. But not only did God make us, he made us the way we are. And by that, I mean, 
He gave us the right gender. Let me say that again. He gave us the right gender. He made us the right height. He made us the right color. He didn't mess up. He placed us on the right continent, in the right family, under the right parents, alongside the right siblings. God has never made a mistake in the entire span of human history, and you and I were not the first. God made us. God made us right, and God loves us thirdly. Jeremiah tells us that God has a plan to do us good and not harm, to give us a hope and a future. God is not an impersonal force that pervades the universe. He's not an ogre who delights in tormenting us. And he's not an austere disciplinarian with a big stick waiting for us to step out of line so he can whack us. God is a father. And he loves us, as this little girl knew well. One night, there was a terrible thunderstorm. The rain lashed down on the roofs of every house in the neighborhood. Deafening claps of thunder shook the window panes, and lightning caused daylight to reappear for a few brief moments. Concerned that their young daughter would be terrified, mum and dad made their way into the room where she was, opened the door, and expected to see her huddled under the covers, terrified. But to their surprise, she was at the window making different shapes and different faces. Honey, what are you doing? They asked. Posing came the reply. God keeps wanting to take my picture. <laughs> now, you could say childish egocentricity. Or you could say childlike security. In a heavenly father. And this girl knew of his love. Listen. God loves you. If you had a fridge, if he had a fridge, your photo would be on it. If he had a cell phone, your number would be on speed dial. If God was on Facebook, or Meta, I think it's called now, you would be one of his BFFs, best friend forever. And he would never diss or delete you. The Bible tells us our names are tattooed on his hands. In other words, we are always before him. More than that, the psalmist tells us that his thoughts towards us are more than the sand on the seashore. In other words, God is thinking up ways to show his love and to send his blessings, showering them on our lives. God loves us totally and unconditionally. He loves us whether we are good or not so good. He loves us whether we are strong or faltering. He loves us whether we succeed or stumble. Whether we get an A or an F. Whether we read our Bible for three hours every day or we can't even manage three minutes. Someone once said, we can't do anything to make God love us any less 
and we can't do anything to make God love us anymore. God doesn't love us because he loves us just because. He's a father. And that's the first thing that I come to understand about God in this parable. That's the first lesson that Jesus wanted us to know. Here's the second. God is a father whose heart aches. So this father in the parable has two sons. And they've worked with him, so it seems, for years. But look at verse 12. The younger one makes a demand for his inheritance. Father, don't you think it's time to give me my share of the estate? Says the Passion Translation. Another one says, Father, give me my inheritance now. Back then, this was just the same as saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. And I, had I been this father, this kid wouldn't have got a hippie. After all, in order to give him what he wanted, land and livestock and assets had to be sold, savings accounts emptied, assets stripped. But the father didn't refuse him. Interesting, isn't it? Love doesn't control, even when it knows we're going to make bad choices. Now on top of that, look at verse 13. This kid gets his money, and then it says he packs all his belongings and traveled off to see the world. Imagine the pain in that father's heart. This boy doesn't just move to another house, or another street, or even another city. He moves to another country, maybe another continent. The message is clear. Dad, I don't want anything else to do with you. I want to get as far away from you as I possibly can. Did you know that's a picture of us? The Bible tells us that shortly after Adam was placed in the garden, he turned his back on God. He took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and he ate it in contravention of God's specific command not to do that. At that point in time, Adam didn't just condemn himself, he condemned everyone that was going to be born into the world after him. Black, white, brown, yellow, rich or poor, when we come into the world, all of us come relationally disconnected from God. In fact, the whole human race is a little bit like this flower. I love flowers. They're intricate. They're fragrant. They're beautiful. They're pleasing. But you know, these are dead. Because they were cut off from the source of their life. Okay, they'll, they'll bloom for a while, maybe a few weeks. 
But sooner or later, they're going to wither and fall and die. The Bible says that's like us. We are cut off from God. And we might think we're okay because we blossom for a while. Paint pictures, write symphonies, travel to the moon, make scientific breakthroughs, medical advances. But spiritually, we are dead because we are cut off. And sooner or later, we're going to wither and die. So the Jewish journalist Bernard Levin could write, Countries like ours are full of people who have all the material comforts they desire, yet lead lives of desperation because there's a hole inside of them. And however much food and drink they pour into it, however many cars and flat screen TVs they stuff it with, however many well-balanced children they parade around the edges, it aches. Blossoming but cut off. It's why Blaise Pascal in another century could say, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man and woman which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, only by God himself. Augustine said the similar thing. We were made for you and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That's why the best-selling author Jack Higgins said, I wish someone had told me when you get to the top, there's nothing there. And why Freddie Mercury, the late lead singer of that incredibly successful pop group Queen, once told an interviewer that despite the career that brought him worldwide fame and millions of pounds in the bank, it never gave him the thing he really desired, which was deep fulfillment in his heart. So the sun walks out. And there's an ache in the father's heart as well as distance in the son's life. It's interesting that you think of the consequences of sin for God. Do you remember when he, after the fall, the first day, God comes down to commune with them as has been his custom. The first words out of his mouth were, Adam, where are you? That was less a question, but more a statement. Adam, you're not here. Adam, there's distance. There's an interruption in our relationship. Something's happened to, to fracture what we had. You see, sin doesn't only break God's law. It breaks God's heart. But he longs for restoration. And that brings us to the third truth we learn about God in this parable. First, we learn he's a father. Secondly, we learn that he is a father with an ache in his heart. And now he's a father who longs for restoration. The son's long gone. He's in another country. 
And actually, there was a protocol that should have happened at that time. Anybody in these circumstances, any family in these circumstances, would have held a funeral service for the prodigal son, the son who had left. They would symbolically bury him, and then they would never mention his name again. But not this dad. This dad did not harden his heart. Even though the boy was out of the father's house, he was never out of the father's heart. And he longs for him to come home. In fact, he has a daily ritual, according to verse 20. Every evening he climbs onto his roof and he stares down the road. I can see him shielding his eyes from the sun, straining to see if anybody's returning. Wondering if one day against the disc of the setting sun there'd be a silhouette that would bring joy to his heart. Because the father wants him back despite what he's done. That's God's heart too, folks. That's why Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. That's why his friends were prostitutes. That's why he went and sat with the woman at the well, making a detour, because there was someone he needed to reach. That's why he was tender with the woman caught in adultery. That's why he invited doubting Thomas to touch his wounds. That's why he came to backslidden Peter with a frying pan and a fish and charcoal and he prepared breakfast for him so that he could restore him. And that's the heart of God. That's what this parable tells us. That God is looking and longing for us to come to him. And then one day, he's on the roof and after possibly hundreds, maybe even thousands, of disappointments. One day he sees something. There it is on the horizon. But the closer it gets, there's something about the gate or the tilt of the head. And the father knows immediately this is his son. Now once again, there was a protocol. There was something that should have been done. There was a custom that needed to be followed. And what the father should have done was locked his door and made his son camp outside for four days so that everybody in the town could come and know that the prodigal had come home and that the father's tarnished reputation was restored. But not this father. That's not what he did. But the moment he sees his son, verse 20, he does what no self-respecting Jew would have ever done in a million years. There were two things a Jewish patriarch would never do, ever. Number one, he would never hurry anywhere but take a sedate step. 
And number two, he would never show emotion in public because it was seen as a sign of weakness. But this father lifts his robe and runs through the street with tears streaming down his face. Reputation, dignity, decorum, tradition, all thrown to the wind in a display of unending love and outrageous grace. All that mattered to him at that moment in time was that his son was coming back. I'd love to have been there to see them meet. Now remember, this boy has lived in the pig pen. His claws would have stunk of swine. His breath would have reeked of the swill and the slop that they ate. That had been his diet too. His body wouldn't have been washed in months. He's filthy from head to foot. But when the father sees him, he kisses him and kisses him and kisses him. And neither does he rub his nose in his failure and in his sin. He doesn't make him jump through hoops. In fact, in verse 21, the son tries to make a speech of repentance, but the father stops him mid-sentence, hugging him in silence. You see, words can't repair what's never been broken. This boy's behavior did break their relationship, but it never broke the father's love. Well, it's going to get worse or better, whichever way you look at it. In verse 22, he commands his servants, quick, bring me the best robe, my very own robe, and I'll place it on his shoulders. Bring the ring, the seal of sonship, and I'll put it on his finger and bring out the best shoes that you can find. Notice the word quick. There's no hesitation here. No reserve, no trial period, no, well, let's see if he really means it. Let's see if he's really changed. The robe, the word that's used was the same word that's used to describe Joseph's coat of many colors. It was a long-sleeved garment of favor. And then he gives him a ring and shoes. The only person that went barefoot in the ancient world was a slave. And this father takes him out of slavery and puts shoes on his feet and then a ring on his finger. He brings him back as a son, complete with a signet ring. But the father hasn't stopped yet. He said, let's prepare a great feast and celebrate. My beloved son was once dead and now he's alive. Once he was lost and now he's found. This is God's outrageous grace. And maybe this morning you've been living in a distant land as far as God's concerned. Maybe you've thrown in the towel. Maybe you've had enough. Maybe your life's in a mess. 
And maybe you want to come home. I want to tell you that there's a welcome in the Father's presence for every prodigal that returns. I want to finish by reading this again in a different way. Philip Yancey, in one of his books, retells this story, and I've changed some of his details to fit in with who we are and where we live. A young girl grows up in Landmark. She attends church, goes to a Christian school, and has a life of privilege. But her parents, honest farmers, are a bit old-fashioned and tend to overreact at her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her dad when he knocks on her room door after an argument. And that night, she hatches a plan that she's mentally rehearsed scores of times. A few days later, she runs away to Vancouver. She went there on a school mission to the east side once and concludes that it's probably the last place her parents will think to look for her. On the second day, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride. He buys her lunch. He arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that makes her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things. Occasionally, she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring and isolated that she can hardly believe she once grew up in the Bible Belt. Once, she had a brief scare when she sees her own picture printed on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have you seen this child? But by now, she has blonde hair, not black. And with all the makeup and body piercing jewelry she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child in a million years. Beside, all of her friends are runaways and nobody squeals. After a year, the first sallow signs of illness appear. And it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days we can't mess around, he growls, and before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside stores. Well, sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl can never relax her guard. Dark bands circle her eyes. Her cough gets worse. Each night she lies awake listening for footsteps. Everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl lost in a frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty and so is her stomach. 
She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers. Then something jolts her memory and images fill her mind. Of summers back home, trips to the lake, walking her dog, picking strawberries, dad's jokes and laughter. Oh God, why did I leave? She says to herself. And pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do now. She's sobbing. And she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls get three straight connections with the answer machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times. But the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm going to catch a bus to Winnipeg. I'll get there about midnight day after tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll stay on the bus and her voice tails off. It takes two straight days for the bus to come across the prairies. During the long, dreary hours, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents weren't in town or missed the call? Shouldn't she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them? And even if they are home, they've probably written her off. She should have given them time to overcome the shock. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech she's prepared for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anybody in years. The bus leaves Brandon just a few hours now. Oh God, she prays. She bites her lip. Finally, it rolls in. It's air brakes hissing in protest. The driver announces in a crackly voice, Winnipeg, Manitoba, 15 minutes, folks. That's all we got here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, licks the lipstick off her teeth, looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips, wonders if her parents will notice if they're there. She rises from her seat, walks along the bus, down the stairs and into the cool night air. Not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepares her for what she sees. There stands a group of 40 brothers, sisters, great aunts, uncles, cousins, a grandpa and even her great grandma. Everybody's hat is colourful and goofy and everybody's blowing noisemakers. Hanging between two sticks is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome home. Then out of the crowd of well-wishers, breaks her dad. She stares out through the tears quivering in her eyes like hot mercury. 
and begins the memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry. I know that he interrupts her as he scoops her in his arms and swings her round and round as though she was four again. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. We're going to be late for the party. A banquet is waiting for you. That's our Father, God. As we bring this into land, I'm going to invite the worship team to come.